message is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Today's teaching is by Pastor Daryl Ruin. Amen. 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 Thank you, Ricky. It's always good when the, uh, the worship and song has just as much truth piled in it as what we're going to find in our worship in the Word. Thanks, Ricky, for leading us. Good morning. How are we? Good. I hope you and I trust you had a wonderful Christmas day. Let me welcome you if this is your first time, your first time in a long time. We're glad you're here. Um, here's what we'd ask you to do if you're visiting with us this morning on this uh, holiday season Sunday. In the uh, bottom right-hand corner of your bulletin, there is a uh, guest card. And if you would, tear that out and uh, fill it out as much or as little as you'd like. And uh, we'd love just to have a record of your visit by that card. And here's what you do with it. You drop it in the brown wooden box at the back of the room. That's our offering box. We give our tithes and offerings there under the Lord as a part of our worship. only thing we ask of you today is that you would, uh, you would offer us that card so that we have a record of your visit. We can reach out to you, answer any questions you might have. We would be appreciative if you left that for us. I'll give you a couple of announcements at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the service. Let's jump right in. Um, the week of Thanksgiving, on that Sunday, I used my uh, most recent military training stint uh, in land navigation to illustrate the fact that when we find ourselves lost on the journey... The best thing to do sometimes is to go back. To go back to the last known navigational point on our map. The last sure thing. It seems uh, frustrating to have to do that, I know, to go back sometimes when you have to go back even so far. But sometimes uh, the truth is that's all we have. In the history of Israel, God directs them to go back. Go back over and over, go back to my truth, go back to my faithfulness, go back to my provision, go back to my promises, go back. And sometimes uh, we look around and spiritually we don't recognize where we are. We can't, uh, we can't see anything that makes any sense to us, and we've lost all bearing, all direction, all, all purpose for our heading. Something has thrown us off track or clouded our vision. And maybe it's sin, maybe it's tragedy, maybe it's the enemy, maybe it's all the above. Whatever the case may be, sometimes all we know for sure is is a place we've been before. Uh, I confess to you that Thanksgiving weekend that I didn't have it in me, not not the here and now me to be thankful, not to not to feel thankful. And so uh, I said to you that all this pastor knew to do was to go back. To go back to points of God's provision in my past. To be thankful there for the now. Someone asked me after that, uh, after that Thanksgiving sermon, Pastor, what exactly do you go back to given what, what has happened in the life of your family? The honest answer to that question is that there are There are numerous truths and promises and monuments in my past to God's faithfulness that I I can go back to. 
But it's also been difficult finding, finding one that helps make any real sense of the point where I am right now. And the truth is, there really isn't anywhere to go back to that resolves the thing completely in my heart. However, here's one verse of Scripture uh, that I've always gone to on behalf of others. I've always gone to on behalf of others who find themselves in tougher and tragic seasons of life. And I've been trying uh, for the last couple of weeks now to tether my own hope to this verse. Um, you know, hope is a, uh, is a funny thing. It needs something not just to look back to, not just a foundation to stand upon, but hope needs something to look forward to, doesn't it? It isn't just about past faithfulness, unfortunately. Hope needs something yet to come. C.S. Lewis said it this way. Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. Hope needs something yet to come. I read a, a story once of a small town in Maine, a valley town that was set to be flooded in order to build one of those uh, hydroelectric hydroelectric plants and so they were going to flood this whole town and everybody voted they were going to do it the town got so much money each each family got so much money and so it was a unanimous vote they, it, there was no real hard feelings generally speaking uh, to doing this and so they were going to flood the town build a major hydroelectric plant they they gave the town I think up to a year to get ready for this in order to get their affairs in order to find where they would move at the end of the year to close down their businesses, to pack up their homes, to do everything that they needed to do. It was going to take a while. They understood this. And so they gave them a significant amount of time. The, the, the story goes that the town over that year, something interesting but really not, not too surprising happened as people began to watch this town prepare to leave they realized that people stopped taking care of stuff. They stopped painting their houses. They stopped repairing things. They stopped uh, keeping track of the, the garbage for the city. They stopped worrying about the, the roads and the schools. And everything just got let go. Um, one psychologist picked up on it and he went in and interviewed some of the folk there. And one of the citizens said this, and I quote, Where there is no faith in future... There is no power for the present. I mean, they, they, they knew there was no future. And so, you really have no strength or no, no hope to do anything in the here and now to maintain or to look forward. It was over in their mind. I don't know about you, but it's, uh, it's hard living without hope for the future. Hope gives strength for your today. Uh, so here, here's the verse I go back to. That I'm going back to. At least, at least for now. I'm, uh, I, I feel like I'm kind of holding on to it. Like you hold on to the side of the pool. Before you push back out into the deep end to tread a little longer. 
It's Second Peter chapter three, verse nine. Turn with me if you have your Bibles. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine. Long ago, I said publicly that this might be one of the most important verses in our Bible. And that's a big statement. I get that. But here's why. I think this verse answers one of the big questions in life. Um, If you were to Google just the top three big questions for life or for humanity, whatever, you're probably going to come up with these three. Throughout history, it's unanimous what the top three questions are in life are. Where did I come from? What am I doing here? And where am I going? Where did I come from? What am I doing here? And where am I going? If I, if I had to add a fourth, it would be this. Where is God in all of that? Especially in all of it when it's a mess. <laughs> because frankly, we don't ask God that kind of question when everything's going well, Right? But when things, when things are confusing, when things aren't clear, when things are foggy, when things are falling apart, whether it has to do with where I've come from, what's going on right now, or what's coming in the future, we want to know, where are you, God? I think, I think 2 Peter 3.9 helps answer that big question. That's why I think it may be one of the most important verses, at least in regards to hope in all of our Bible. 2 Peter 3, 9 says this, The Lord is not slow about His promises, as some count slowness or slackness. You could say, the Lord is not slow about His word, His commitment, as some count slowness. He's not slack about His commitment, as some count slackness. But He is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The context for that verse is found earlier in the chapter, verses 1 through 4. Let me read those to you so you have an idea of why why Peter says this. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, as if to say I don't mind. And I'm writing to stir you up, to stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder. We need reminders that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So sometimes we need to go back, don't we? Here's what they were saying. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come. They will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. And here's... Here's what they might say. Where is the promise of His coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep. All continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. What's the context of that verse that I'm clinging to? What's the context of verse 9? The context of verse 9, it's, it's simple. It's not, it's not very complicated. What's taking your God so long? That's the, that's the question the verse is hoping to address. There were those who would surround those early Christians and say, listen, um, you know, I know that uh, part of this whole deal was that he said he was coming back, right? And, and 
you know, I know we were confused. We thought as he came into, into Jerusalem the first time that he was going to whoop tail and take names and set up his throne and set up his kingdom. And he was going to pull out all those who were oppressing us. And he was going to set up his throne there. And we, we, the, we the, the nation of Israel, we were going to take over. And, and, okay, we were mistaken there. He had come to save us from our sins first and not yet from our oppression. But he said he's coming back, right? And he's going to fix all that. And he's going to come back and he's going to judge the, the whole world in righteousness. It's been a while. It's been a while. That, that's the context. Peter says, those people will come and they, they, will, they will mock your faith with something that resembles, where is your God? What is he doing? Are you sure he's coming back? The inference to all those questions, are you sure he's even there? Do you have any real, real faith in this God, this Messiah who you said is Jesus? Um, I jotted down a few things as I revisited this verse and as I'm looking forward to a new year with some hope. I'm going to give them to you this morning. And uh, maybe they'll be helpful to you. Three things. The first was found in the context of the first four verses. And here it is. Sometimes it's our own heart that is the scoffer or the false teacher. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. In the context here, Peter is, Peter is reminding them that there will be those surrounding the church... That will, that, will, that will say things that will cause you to call your own faith into question. And that was true, and those people were there. There would be many false teachers, there would be many mockers, there would be many scoffers, there would be many people that would attempt, with questions and doubting, to throw those early believers off track. Plenty of those other people. What occurred to me as I cling to this verse, as I attempt to tether my hope back to things I've, I've not only held on to in my past, but I've offered you in your seasons, is that sometimes it doesn't take any other, any other, my own heart can be the one throwing me into confusion. My own heart could be the one in turmoil. My own heart can be the one bringing up doubts, bringing up questions. Maybe not scoffing. Maybe that's a strong word. Maybe not, maybe not a false teacher in the sense that we think of those outsiders trying to lead us astray. But sometimes in the midst of the seasons we find ourselves in, in this life, in this world, my own heart leads me into false teachings. So sometimes I recognize that the context is, is within and that's helpful. It's not pleasant, but it's, it's helpful. The second thing I jotted down comes from verses 5 through 8. Let me read those verses to you because Peter begins to combat those mockers. And he does it, he does it with some truth here. And it's interesting where he goes. Verse 5, For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. 
And the earth was formed out of the water and by the water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. As if to say, you know, there was some time lapse back in the day, but God, God came through with his judgment, didn't he? He made the world out of this abyss and then he flooded the world with water. And so God, God, maybe there's some time between, but, but God is not, he's not asleep. By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved, verse 7, for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And he says that to say this, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The truth that Peter is communicating is this. God is eternal. What that means is is that he has no beginning and he has no end. You and I, on the other hand, are not eternal. We are immortal. That may be a surprise to you, but what that means is we have no end in the future, but we did, unlike God, have a beginning. We were born. We were created. We were formed, designed. We have a beginning No, you do not have an end, so you are immortal. The Bible says that you will live forever in one of two places, heaven or hell. But God, unlike us, He lives on a different plane altogether. Eternity is not just time extended forever. Eternity is above and beyond and outside and apart from time. So God... God is a part, above, beyond. He lives on another plane. That's where he lives. God is eternal. And sometimes that that one fact escapes us, and he brings it up as a reminder to those who might scoff, where is your God? I mean, the time, the time is going by and, you know, the fathers have fallen asleep and, and one generation comes and another goes and you guys are still clinging to this. And, and where is he? Well, truth says this. Truth says this. Now, here's the thing I jotted down. That's what he says. Here's the thing I jotted down. In complete honesty, in complete transparency, the thing I jotted down is that God's, propos- God's position outside of time is, frankly, little consolation to me and maybe to you when we're living here in, in our time frame and we are aching and we are hurting. Now, I did not say it is of no consolation because it is, it is true and it is useful. And I think as he says, beloved, don't let this thing escape your notice. He knows that that truth will undergird us. We, we sometimes need to be reminded of just, just some of the basic facts. That God is bigger and, and outside and he's in control. And he's not, he's not con, constrained by our time frame. Right? I mean, that, there is help in that. But at the same time, what occurred to me as I, as I read those verses is that, that you know what, the, the one thing I do identify with, Peter, is that one day seems like a thousand years when I'm living in my aching. Um, and, I know that, and I know that God lives apart and above, but I live, I live here still. And today, this one day, it's a 
It's sometimes difficult. But that led me to the third thing I jotted down. And it was what led me back to verse 9. Sometimes our pain needs to be viewed through the lens of God's patience. Sometimes our pain has to be, must be, can only be, needs to be viewed through the lens, the spectrum, the perspective of God's patience. The Lord is not slow about His word, His promise in the context here. When is God coming back to judge the world in righteousness? Listen, God lives on another level. That's true. But He's not slow about His promise either. He's not asleep. He's not aloof. He's not a slacker. As some might think. But here's what He is and here's who He is and here's what He is doing. He is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So while God's existence outside of our time frame brings little consolation, listen, His heart's desire towards us brings great consolation. It brings great consolation when my heart wonders, what is the Father doing? When my heart wonders, when will He fix all the mess? When my heart wonders, where is He? When my heart wonders, why hasn't He intervened? Did I hit all the W's? No? Hold on. What is the answer to those? To the what, the when, the where, and the why? The answer is the same. It's verse 9, His patience. What is the Father doing? He is being patient. When will He fix all the mess? Only when His patience runs out. Where is He? He is patiently restraining Himself. I love I love to think about God not sitting back, not kicked back, leaning back in the recliner, lazy boy of his throne, but slid to the edge of his throne, waiting to thrust himself back into humanity, back into our aches and our pains and our tears, back into our mess. But he is, according to verse 9, as I picture it, he is being patient. Patience brings with it, patience infers with it that you have to hold yourself back from something. Patience means that you want to do something, but you're going to wait, right? Patience means that you want to move on something, but you're telling yourself, not yet, not yet. There's, there's a good reason why I have to wait. And it says in verse 9 that, that God himself is being patient. He's restraining himself. Where is he? He's on the edge of his throne. He's on the edge of his throne. Why hasn't he intervened? Because he is patient, not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What W did I leave out, English majors? The who. We'll get to the how here in a second. Sometimes. Sometimes how? The who, the why, the what, where, and the when. The who's important though, isn't it? Because sometimes our heart, as we're asking all these other questions, what is he doing? Where is he? Why is he not intervening? Sometimes that, that creates in us a greater question, a more important question. Who is this God? 
And verse 9 says, He is, His character is, His person is, His heart for us is patient. Long-suffering. This verse agrees with 1 Timothy 2, 4 that says, God desires all men to be saved. That's His, that's his emotion. That's His, his, his will. That's who He is. Sometimes how? Sometimes how? Let me get to that. Um, I love the story of Noah and the ark. But many in our world only see the God of uh, wrath and destruction in that story. They forget God's patience. It's interesting. I think Peter is alluding to that story. Maybe you'll remember what led up to the flood, the ark, the calling of Noah. Maybe, maybe you'll remember God's long-suffering towards the nation of Israel. Trivia question. Who, who is the oldest person to have ever lived? Methuselah. Yeah, many of us know that. Do you know what Methuselah means? What is that? Old? Methuselah means judgment is coming. And when Methuselah was born, it was as if he gave a warning to the nation that judgment is coming. At the end of Methuselah's life, the story of Noah begins. That's when judgment starts. It's interesting. You get a guy, Enoch, that gets plucked out before the judgment. God always removes his faithful. And so you get one who, he doesn't even die. It just says that God takes him. It's an interesting, interesting verse. But then you have Methuselah. And it's as if God says to the nation of Israel, listen, um, judgment has to fall. Judgment has to fall. Judgment is coming. And when this guy, when this guy kicks, when he's done, here it comes. But isn't it interesting that that guy is the oldest person who's ever lived? What does that say about God's patience, His long-suffering? Was judgment going to fall? Judgment was going to fall. Was God going to intervene? He was going to intervene. Was He still on His throne? He was. What was He doing? He was being patient. He was being patient. So the who, the what, the when, the where, the why, sometimes how. The answer to the how, I think, starts with Christmas. The answer to the how starts with Emmanuel, God with us. You know, Christmas is a celebration, isn't it? It's a time of great joy. But never forget that Christmas was born in grief. I can't say it any better than uh, Dr. Al Mohler, president of Southern Seminary, said it on Tuesday. And I'll close with this. Is Christmas also for those who grieve? Such a question would perplex those who experienced the events that night in humble Bethlehem and those who followed Christ throughout His earthly ministry. Christmas is especially 
for those who grieve. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Galatians, reminds us of the fact that we are born as slaves to sin. It says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Out of darkness came light. As the prophet Isaiah foretold, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who walk in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. This same Christ is the Messiah who, as Isaiah declared, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He fully identifies with and shares all our afflictions. And He came that we might know the only rescue from death, sorrow, grief, and sin. The baby Jesus was born into a world of grief, suffering, and loss. The meaning of His incarnation was recognized by the aged Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, who prophesied that God had acted to save His people, saying this, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Why don't you stand with me and pray? This holiday season, Lord, we, we tether our hope We tether our hope to these things. They may not resolve the pain, but they give us strength to press on. Above all, we trust your heart, Father. We know that you are for us because you came for us and you wait patiently for us. Holy Spirit, use these use these sure landmarks of your faithfulness, of your intervention into humanity to anchor our hearts and souls as we move from this holiday season and from one year into another. Grant us peace. In Christ's name, who is our cornerstone. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.